0: Welcome to Unboxed. I'm your host, Connie Nam, the founder of Astrid and In these conversations, I speak to the founders of some of the most innovative, bold, and exciting businesses to discover the person behind the brand and what it took for them to build their empires. My guest today is a great mentor and friend, and our early stage investor, Gary Clark. Gary shares how failure has been pivotal for success. What he looks for in a business and its founders, and the biggest mistakes he sees people make while growing a business. Gary, welcome to my studio and welcome to my podcast. How are you today?
1: I'm good, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, nice and warm outside. So, yeah, good, all good.
0: Yeah, it might not be so warm when we air this, but yeah, it's really nice today when we're recording. Um, Yeah, so let's jump straight into yourself and your career. You were a very established uh, investor in the public markets, and then you switched to private markets, and you were a very early stage investor. So tell me all about this.
1: If we go right back to the start, then, um, yeah, I was a public market investor, left kind of university and because I'm really old right guys uh in the 1990s um and um was trained I guess well actually I was a failed account I, I, fa- I mean failure I think is going to be a theme for this for this podcast I love it. right um I was a failed accountant is the honest truth so I left university I didn't know that yeah yeah I was a failed <laughs> accountant I mean I'm, I think being a failed accountant is like a double failure because like deciding you want to be an accountant in the first place could, could be considered failure but being a failed <laughs> accountant is like a double failure so, so and I I failed after about 18 months uh, and I failed I think because I was like you know this is early 20s I was in my early 20s I think I was just not mature enough or ready for work basically so after about 18 months I kind of flunked my second set of accountancy exams which was a kind of foregone conclusion because I had not done any work for them right Uh, and kind of rethought my life went back to university did a second degree and then kind of thought a bit more clearly about what I wanted to do with my life.
0: What was your second degree?
1: Secondary was economics, so a master's in economics at Warwick. Um, And I I guess I was a bit more mature by then. I thought a bit harder about what I wanted to do. And like investing really appealed to me. So I applied to, you know, a pile of different like investment banks and fund management houses, et cetera. Um got very few interviews to be honest so you know I'm a kind of working class kid um, didn't probably have the right social background for the city at that point because we're still talking about the kind of early mid-90s they took very few um, people on from my kind of social background at that point in time um, but got lucky, I guess, and and went to work for the Prudential that had a investment scheme where they took on two grads a year. And from then on, it was kind of, you know, I was doing something that I loved from that point onwards. And my whole attitude to kind of work uh, and life changed at that point, to be honest. Before that, and I was... 24, 25. When I went there, before that, I honestly went through my early twenties thinking I would never find work that I enjoyed or liked. So when I finally found something that I enjoyed, it was like a revelation to me uh, and like a like a like a second life to be honest.
0: What was it about investing that was, um, I guess, fun and inter- interesting for you?
1: Lot, lots of things. I think um, the variety. Um, I'm, I'm quite um, I have quite a low boredom threshold. And one of the great things about investing is you can you can kind of get deep, but I also like getting deeply embedded in stuff. So investing allows you to get deeply embedded with things and then move on to the next thing and then maybe move back to the first thing. And I think I like that kind of almost project-driven kind of nature of it in a way. Um also it's really competitive. I mean, public markets are super competitive, and I am a kind of super competitive person. So the idea that you're measured as well and measured in an objective way, I really like objective measurement because you know it, it gets around biases so you know it gets around class biases or sex biases or um, race biases you know you the great thing about investing, particularly in public markets actually is you are either good at it or you're not good at it. And it doesn't matter who you are, how you you know how you talk. I mean, it matters to some extent.
0: What made you switch from public markets to private markets? Yeah.
1: So I, I switched from public to private markets in kind of 24, well, formally in 2016, right? So to be honest with you, what, what did it was a couple of things. One, I began to get bored of, you know, I, I'd been, I'd had a, had a great career, loved it, very grateful for the opportunities that I had in the end. Um, But I'd done it for, like, 25 years um, by, you know, the mid-teens. I had enough money, frankly, to not have to work for somebody else. Um, And I wasn't greedy about money. So I think a lot of people in my situation might have carried on to, you know, carry on piling up their, you know, their their kind of coins. I didn't really think like that. For me, it was more interesting to kind of have variety in my life and to um, have kind of challenge, Um, And I was bored of big organizations. Frankly, I was, you know, I worked my last big job in the city was at BlackRock, which is the biggest fund manager in the world, you know, fine organization. But like, you know, um, large organizations bring their own challenges. And I'm quite an idiosyncratic kind of individual in different ways. And like I'd gone many, many years where I felt I'd kind of squeezed myself into the institutional setting. Um, and I just kind of had enough of it, to be honest, um, which is not about them, it's about me. The first investment I ever made, and I made this when I was actually still at BlackRock, so still in the city in one of these kind of big jobs. Uh, and I met Tom Broughton, who um, is the founder of Cubit. So I think you're interviewing on, on another one of these, yes, the, these yes. podcasts. So, so f- he
0: has been featured in previous, um, okay, yeah, brilliant. A, a couple well, of week, yeah. weeks Yeah. Well, well,
1: Tom will probably feature quite strongly <laughs> in this, this pod as well. So we get double Tom. So what, what happened was, that, I mean, it was serendipity to some extent. I was walking, I live in Israel. Um I just spent a ridiculous amount of money on a couple of pairs of glasses. And then I walked past this little menswear store called Album, which used to, used to be on the Yeah, in and Spitterfields,
0: right? Yeah, and, and yeah. one in
1: Spitalfields exactly. Uh, and I saw these glasses in the window. These, In fact, it was a case with six different uh, frames, spectacle frames. And I thought, oh, they're really cool. They're actually better than the ones that I've just dumped a load of money on so I went into the store and kind of said what are this thing I said these are Qubits never heard of the brand and, and at the time you know Qubits had no stores um a very small online presence I think the business had been going for like a year or less than a year um I didn't know any of this so I, I thought well like and the price point was really good so I thought I'm going to try some of these so like I bought some uh and I said to my wife Majida uh I can't understand how they can do this so cheaply, and it's really great design. I said, if these don't fall apart in the first two weeks, I'm gonna track these guys down. And I'd never kind of done that before. Um, they didn't fall apart, I like them. Um, so I sent an email to help at Qubits or something, saying, um, if you guys need any advice or investment or help or whatever, I really like what you're doing, really like the specs, um, let me know. And I got a reply. Uh, about five minutes later, <laughs> basically <laughs> saying, we don't need any money, but.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he really needed yeah, the money. Yeah, of course he needed money, right?
1: <laughs> so um, at the time, and I, I then subsequently realized that all Cubits was at the time was Tom and Joe Bell, uh, who, who started the company with, uh, w- with Tom, working out of Tom's second bedroom in his flat in King's Cross. And that was what Cubits was. Um, And I met Tom um, for a coffee uh, in King's Cross. And I kind of, it was one of those serendipitous meetings, right? I kind of could see straight away that he was a special person. What do you look for in a founder? And we'll probably, we we should go into that later. But like Tom, in some ways, is a model of that because he's like deeply passionate about the category. He was smart, um, idiosyncratic, but could also understand kind of numbers um, and modeling and what it took to make a business succeed. And I could kind of see this straight away. And I think in that very first meeting, we, I think we struck a deal in that very first meeting. I think within 45 minutes of meeting, I kind of made him an offer to invest in a company. And I made an offer, which I'm kind of proud of actually, and I think was the right thing to do. I made an offer that was like 50 or 100% higher than the other offers that he had on the table. Um, because I didn't think the other offers were fair, uh, and I thought I'd be a better partner, um, and that kind of was a model. Uh, not that I'm, I don't give away money, Rover, right, but, <laughs> yeah. but that was kind of started me off on the on the kind of pattern of thinking along the lines of how do you keep the founder incented, and how do you do this in a fair way. Um, And it's enlightened self-interest, right? It's not—it's not actually altruism. It's enlightened self-interest. It's like, how do you keep the founder incented? How do you, yeah? How how do you, um, how do you partner with them in a way that they always feel is fair? Um, And that's kind of—I would like to think that that's the way that I've continued to do my angel investments from that from that point onwards. But that that meeting with Tom was was like a big one in my life, actually, Uh, and opened out the whole um, this whole kind of arena of of angel investing, particularly in the consumer and and Accessories space.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And obviously, like we met through another investor, but have you made other investments through cold calling like that? Because that's kind of unheard of. I've never heard an investor cold calling
1: a founder. I don't think I have, you know. I'd love to tell you that, that I've yeah. done like 10 of them. And <laughs> how did
0: you How did you have the conviction, right? Because it was just Tom. And yeah. how did you have so much confidence in, I guess, your decision and Tom yeah. at that point? You haven't done any investment yeah. at that point, uh, pri- private investment. Yeah. And it was, yeah. I guess purely based on gut instinct in a way, right?
1: It's a great question. I think two things, right? A, I was confident in my ability as an investor. So I was confident in my ability to understand whether it was a good business and could make money and how I would assess the numbers of that. So that's kind of one thing. But I think the probably more important thing is I actually really love brands and products and stuff. Uh, And I, you know, I always have since I was a kid. And I kind of, yeah, I I feel like I'm pretty well tuned into the things that I, there's things that I like, right? I think with consumer goods and accessories, like you have to kind of feel that thing in your, that tingle in your stomach that kind of makes you think, I want to wear this or, you know, I want to use this.
0: Like our pearl necklace that you're wearing. (laughs) Like your pearl
1: necklace. So, you know, I had, and I like, I like, I like glasses, you know, like I had to wear them from the age of 16. um, And, you know, you first, when you first wear your first pair of glasses at 16, it's like, oh my God, I've got to put these things over my face. I feel like a geek. This is terrible. And then, like, you know, you learn that actually they can be quite cool. Yeah. And so that's you know, exactly
0: the same as Tom's story, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, Tom's story is. Better than that in terms of glasses, right? So you actually started the company, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I I was kind of a glasses geek to some extent, not to the extent that Tom is, but it's a category that I understood. It's a category that I experienced, um, and I felt that like I understood the product, and it, it did that little thing like in your stomach where you're like, I want some of those. Mm. You know, it was literally that first moment of seeing those things in the in the window at album. It's like, oh fuck, they're cool. Um, it was really just that. It was my gut instinct as a consumer, actually.
0: That's so interesting. It's a, a such a different way of looking at things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish I wish that I could find more of those, Connie. To be honest with you, I, I wish. I, you know, maybe part of that is I'm now, um, you know, I'm now older, so maybe I'm not as tuned in enough to the the 20 year old consumer, maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I'd love to to have that experience more where I see something in a window and it, it, it really, really excites me. I have to be honest with you and say I see that less as, as I get older.
0: And what are the biggest differences and commonalities between public market investing and private market investing? Yeah.
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, so different,
0: right? Because like, if I look at Joe, my husband, he's looking yeah. at spreadsheets all day. He's looking at the markets, and it's like a lot of like analytics that go in, and a lot of information gathering. Yeah. Whereas, like private, I would think is like you don't have a lot of information, right? You don't they, have
1: yeah. you don't have a lot of information. I mean, it's very different. There are some things that are the same, right? So understanding markets uh in, you know, in the consumer space understanding what drives consumer behavior and that sort of thing and like understanding margin structures and what products can work in a business and what products can't work in a business all of that was my understanding of that was all grounded in my public market experience right but then the things that are really different are as you say to joe's point you know you in public markets you do a lot of data analysis and a lot of looking at profit and loss, um, cash flow statements, balance sheets, et cetera, competitor analysis. For startups, it's all about growth. It's all about kind of, it's, it's kind of a different emotional state. It's about opening your mind up to the possible. And it's about imagination, actually, um, on on a couple of different levels. Um, imagining that growth can happen, uh, imagining what growth might look like, and yeah. So it, it is different. It is different. Um, but I think there's enough commonality that my public market experience really, really helps me and has consistently helped me with understanding the best investments to make. Um, still make loads of mistakes, right? You, st- you, you can't. I think if you don't make mistakes, you're doing something wrong, actually, in public and private investing. Because you've got to kind of be on that, uh, without getting too technical about it, you've got to be on that kind of risk cusp mm. where you're you're maximizing your opportunity set, so you're going to make mistakes, right? And you're going to make more mistakes in private markets, probably, than you're going to make in public markets. Because in public markets, you're investing in established companies. The share price might go down, but the business is still going to be around in 10 years, right? Whereas in private markets, it's much more of a binary thing. Either they're going to succeed and be around in 10 years, or they're, or they're going to die. Um, so you did, have to you, kind
0: of- did you have to have a complete mindset shift? because it's so different and you need to believe and you need to kind of like you're investing in an individual in a way
1: right yeah you're totally investing in an individual it's all about individuals and maybe to make it sit comfortably with my own kind of story I've always thought always an investor now an investor just doing it in a different space but like I mean, I, I would actually so I'd answer the question a different way, right? I would say that I think I'm a way better investor now for having done private markets than I was having done 25 years in public markets. And I had a very successful career in public markets, right? But I think I'm a way better investor now um, and understand much more about what makes a good investment now, makes a good company and makes a good manager or founder of a business than I ever did um, with 25 Why years. Why is
0: that? How so?
1: Well, you're closer to it, right? So, you know, my personal relationships with um, people like Tom or, you know, a number of the different investments I've made or you, for example, you know, I I understand that kind of founder journey and the things that it takes to run the business and all the myriad different things that hit you every day and the chaos and madness (laughs) of being a founder, right, and running a business. So, So in public markets, you know, the, the job's actually way simpler. So being a CEO of Tiffany or something, right, w- would be in some ways a much simpler job, right, than being, um, than your job because you have so many more functions to think about in depth and detail. Whereas the the bigger an organization is, the more siloed it becomes, um, you know the in some ways the simpler the job of managing that business becomes or, or you know it's been simplified as a process of simplification whereas when you're managing a startup you've got to think about everything right you've literally got to think about everything in the business um, every function uh, and at the start I'm sure it was for you I mean you tell me right so when you know when you and Sarah started Astrid Tell me, like, three things that you had to think about then that you don't have to think about now.
0: Like everything, I had to think (laughs) about everything: customers, products, the cleanliness of the office. Like all of these things, I don't need to think about. Yeah, I mean, I I do think about customers. Don't get me wrong, but like, I don't need to think about like, oh, is there order? Like, are there orders there on time? Yeah, and like, yeah. So, would you say your
1: job's got more simple or more complicated as Astrid has grown? I
0: can't really say. I think it's a different job there was more doing initially and more getting into the details but now like there's more I guess managing dynamics and managing org charts and thinking about the future and making sure like everyone's maximized to their potential so they're like completely different different skill sets.
1: Which did you enjoy most the first two years or the last two years?
0: I think last two years for me personally.
1: Yeah. Yeah why?
0: Just because I can there there's a lot more room to think big and also, like, if I come up with ideas or, like, say something, things just get done, <laughs> which is quite fun. And I get to do things like this, like, you know, interview. Does um, that feel like interview. a
1: miraculous novelty that you ask and stuff gets done?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's only the last. I mean, it's it, like I always had a really good team, right, who's yeah. really good at executing. But we always had to be really scrappy. And I had to somewhat get involved to get things done. But now, like, yeah. I don't need to do any anything in a, in a way brilliant and I shouldn't right
1: yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's a really interesting point right because I think if you are a successful founder you kind of have to reinvent your job every year or so yeah. right every six um, months yeah
0: and you need to kind of list out what the success factors are in this job every six months otherwise you kind of become um redundant or you start annoying people because you're stepping on their toes
1: yeah, I think you've been very good at that though. My observation is that you've been very good at reinventing what you do at various junctures. I think my observation would be that like you go through like a, a little little crisis of personality yeah, yeah. and then you kind of repoint and go again. Yeah. But like every time you you have, have always been capable of kind of repointing. Yeah. Every time game. I
0: go through a crisis moment, I call you, right? Gary. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Some, <laughs>
1: sometimes, yeah. Yeah, which is an interesting one actually because that, that kind of cuts to... to something that I think is good, worth talking about, right, which is relationships between investors and uh, and founders, which I think can, you know, can be um, very, very, they have a com- complete range, right, from investors who don't touch, mm. never speak to the founder from the point that they make the investment to people who are really kind of hands-on. Um so, I'm going to make this interview. I mean, in, I'm going to interview you now, right? So, okay. So, 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 <laughs> Go so, for it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, what's
1: your what's your experience with, with investors?
0: Investors. It yeah. really varies, right? Now, you know, like obviously you sit on the board, and Marcus, who's the CEO of Aternum, the f- institutional investor, sit on the board. And we've got such good dynamic. We have a very open kind of dynamic. And
1: yeah, I think the board's great. Astrofield yeah. board is great. It's like, yeah, it's, it's actually <laughs> the most functional. Uh, well, actually, it's, good it's, it's a super functional board with great people, w- with really good people on it. And it's, yeah. always, and it's always fun and always constructive.
0: This episode is sponsored by Harbottle & Lewis. As a first-time entrepreneur, getting advice from somebody I can trust, who understands legals as well as commercials, and the startup ecosystem was so crucial in the early days. This is what I found in Tony Littner, my friend and partner at Harbottle & Lewis. He was so knowledgeable and seasoned, yet he never made me feel stupid with legal jargons. Quite the opposite. He was able to explain things in simple language and could relate to commercial points like a founder. Since my first fundraise Tony supported me with, Harbottle and Lewis have been a genuine strategic partner throughout my journey. From subsequent fundraises to IP, operations, and HR matters, for over 60 years Harbottle and Lewis have acted for some of the most creative, talented, and entrepreneurial people in corporate across all of their legal needs, both business and personal. Their client list is brimming with household names, the most exciting brands and coolest startups, like Astrodomew. To find out more, you can follow them on Instagram and LinkedIn. Just search for Harbottle and Lewis. To find out how Tony and the team at Harbottle can support you, you can contact him directly for an initial conversation via the firm's website at harbottle.com Tony Littner. This episode is sponsored by BAO. Many people will know Astrid and Mew for our buzzing stores and their services. What they don't know is that we are a digital first brand. After our quick store expansion, we were looking for an agency who can elevate the brand, guide us to scale and build a truly omni-channel brand. That's when we came across By Association Only, otherwise known as BAO, the Shopify Plus agency for the world's most design-conscious luxury brands. They are founder and values-led, just like Astrid and Mew. They also just got the intangibles of brand building while being highly technical. The founders, James Joe and Evan, are so down to earth and are there to talk to you whenever you need them. BAO is a true partner and an extension of my team. If you're looking for an award-winning Shopify Plus agency that prioritizes design, technical innovation, and commercial growth, please visit byassociationonly.com, also linked in our show notes. So as an investor what do you look for in a founder?
1: Wow. Um
0: and or the business.
1: Well, obviously. well well founder first obviously, right? I mean like all you're investing in it really is a person or a group of people ultimately. Um so, you know, let's address that first. What do I look for? Well, like I look for um passion, which sounds naff, but like, you know, it, it, you've got to look and, and it's not passion's not always obvious, right? People can fake passion, right? So you need to kind of dig under a little bit.
0: How do you dig under it?
1: You got to spend time with people, right? So like I thinking I don't make that many investments, right? So lots of people who hear me talk about investing think, oh, Gary must make, you know, like 10 investments a year. And he's sitting on a portfolio of like 50, 100 different companies. I don't I do like I go deep in the companies that I invest in, um, and and put a lot of time into it. So, you know, I like to spend time with people um, before I make the investment. And like, you know, I, I string it out, but I don't string it out as some kind of power trip. I string it out because I want to get a feel for that individual and understand what drives them. Before I invested in Qubit, I went to a meeting with Tom. Tom went to, there was a, there's a factory, which was the last before Qubit started making um glasses in the uk the last um spectacle factory in the uk was a place called the alga works in in hackney and tom and i I went with tom to a meeting with them because we were thinking about sourcing some stuff from there and uh and that was the thing that made really convinced me that this was a great guy to invest in because he was like super humble but asked you know, great questions. And it was clear that he was really, really passionate and knowledgeable about the product. I gave Tom a lift back from this meeting and I was trying to ask, I was asking him some kind of, you know, left field questions, trying to get a better feel for who he was and what his ambitions were. And I said, I said to him, so, so like, what do you really want out of this, Tom? What, what, what really drives you here? And he gave me an answer that would have scared the shit out of most investors, but I really liked. And his answer was, he looked at me and he kind of, he says, like, I just want to make beautiful things. <laughs>
0: and, and that was, <laughs> that was just like,
1: and that is yeah. Tom, it was very
0: right? authentic. Very authentic yeah. because,
1: like, the temptation I think for him in that situation would have been to say, "Oh, I would like to build a you know billion pound company, and I would like to be the biggest, baddest, yeah, mostest." Yeah, yeah. But like, actually, I thought, well. If that was all that he was, that if the only thing that he was interested in was making beautiful things, then like, you know, that wouldn't have been enough, obviously. But I knew enough other stuff about him um, that he was ambitious and he was competitive and he did want to build something. But that was just like, OK, I really get who this guy is. Yeah. And, you know, it's not and I actually think it's really important for founders not to be about primarily about money. I mean, mm. it's good to want to make money because, it, you know, if you're an investor, that's why you're in it, right? So you do want your founders to want yeah. to build something big, profitable, um, scalable. But like, if you're a founder, mon- the drive for money alone is not going to sustain you. It's not going to sustain you yeah, through the I journey. I completely
0: agree. You need yeah. so much grit and determination and you need yeah. something to like power you through.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you've got to you've got to love the category. I think the reason we got here was you asked me um, what do I look for in founders, right? So,
0: by the way, how did I answer that? Did you ask a similar question to me? And I did I ask
1: don't... a similar question to you, and you were actually much more um, obviously ambitious and commercial than Tom was, actually, in your answer to it. So. I think you're you constructed the answer that you thought an investor wanted to hear. Oh, did I? I? Think. So which was still a good answer. Yeah. But you know, I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons that I liked you and thought you were a super backable founder when I met you was a lot of your personal characteristics really reminded me of Tom, actually. Mm. Um, I mean you're very different individuals, yeah. but what, what were those
0: characteristics?
1: Humility, right? So what I look for when you can find it is great and it's very rare is um a kind of really deep inner drive and self-belief coupled with humility right coupled and, and and you know is tom a humble person yeah in some ways he's not right in other ways he's really humble right and i and i think and i see the same thing in you why is that important right so the reason that humility is important and how it manifests itself is the ability to take on lots of advice right to to Um, cast your net widely for advice find as many wise people or people with experience around that you can find around to give you advice but actually still going your own path right so value having the ability to value all of those pieces of advice put them into a kind of mental framework and pattern but still choose your own path and I think that you have that and I think that Tom has that so um, and, and that's a really great behavior. So, a bad behavior I think that I would avoid would be one where you're so sure that you're right and your vision that you just don't listen to anybody else and you don't give a damn what anybody else says. That I think is a bad way to progress because you're never going to get the benefit in of, life. Yeah, in, li- in, general, in life right? and in business. Absolutely. An equally bad way to progress as a founder is to just kind of vacillate around between different pieces of advice. You know, hearing, I, I hear this a lot these days, like people hear something great on a podcast from a founder or someone who's built a great business or an influence or whatever, and they go, well, X said, and then they spend the next three weeks trying to do exactly what X mm-hmm. said. And I see it in so many different uh, manifestations of life, right? So they do it with diet, they do it with exercise, they do it with business, they do it. And it's just like, oh my God, it just yeah. drives me mad. It's like, people are so like, you know, bullied from pillar to post in terms of how they think they should run their lives or or and, and like you know be your own person right Have, believe in yourself at the same time as understanding that other people's journeys are going to teach you something right anyway maybe we're digressing maybe we're not but like I think that that ultimately I think is what I see in Tom and what I see in you and what I see in other successful founders is that really deep core of self-belief coupled with um, uh, a desire and ability to learn from other people and take advice from other people. And I think that is a really key characteristic of, of good, not only good founders, actually, it's just successful people in life mm. generally, I think.
0: Sounds like great, great characteristics. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what what else do you well look for? You. <laughs> well, you've got the same, right? You've got the same kind of characteristics. Not for me to say. <laughs> what else do you look for like a business model yeah. and/or yeah.
1: founder in consumer stuff, um, I basically look for um, high scalable, high gross margin businesses. So you know, without getting kind of technical and financial about it, it's businesses where and what allows that kind of what I call brandability. So like, is it a category where the the, the kind of intangibles that you can bring to the product really really matter like design, marketing, personality, um, value set, um, experiences. You know, one of the things that Astrid does really well, obviously, is bring ex- retail experience. Right. So you know, those things are really important in products and consumer businesses. Right. So how much value can you bring to the consumer experience that is is, is almost intangible and and there and then. You know how can you monetize? I guess and and monetize that value um, over time, and and is it scalable? Um, those are, those are essentially the things that I look for in a in a consumer business.
0: And do you have a general philosophy around your in investment?
1: You mean like a val- philosophy of values? Yes. Or? Yeah. My main philosophy is work if, where you can with people who you like being around. <laughs> so so you know like. I could give you an answer here. Like, you know, I believe in, you know, sustainability and, you know, uh, opportunity bringing that. And and I believe in all of those things. I believe in all the good stuff, obviously. Right. But like, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, it's not really primarily about altruism for me. It's about finding winners and interesting people and interesting businesses. And, um, and people that I want to spend time with, that I'm happy to spend time with, because I do generally put a lot of time and emotional effort into a number of the investments that I make, which means that I'm going to spend time with those people. and I need to like those people. I need to be aligned with them in terms of their values. And I need to feel good in the room, right? It's like back to your board example is like, I I, I don't want to sit in a room with people battling and, you know with negative energy in the room and like I'm too old and frankly too wealthy to have to go through that shit I don't I don't want to do it I want to be around people who make me feel I mean that that's the key right yeah in life and in business be around people who make you feel good. That's the kind of acid test. If you're in a room with somebody who doesn't make you feel good, get out of that situation, get rid of it. If you're running the business, just get rid of that person. And if you're working for that person, go work for somebody else. Do not be around people who make you feel bad about yourself. Like that, that, so actually that's my key value is try to be around people and situations that excite you and make you feel better about yourself.
0: When I first met you to pitch straight of me, what was so refreshing about you was that you were asking a lot of personal questions. And it sounds so obvious that in a startup, you're investing in a founder, but you'd be amazed how many people don't really ask personal questions.
1: Did you think it was intrusive?
0: No, I didn't think so. I thought it was very endearing. And I thought, like, you know, you, you cared. You, like, you came across very warm and likable. Yeah. Do you think that's like a differentiating factor? Are you aware of this firstly? And do you think that's like a differentiating factor for you?
1: I don't think I was aware of it when I started. Um, So for me, it was kind of obvious that if you're investing in a business that doesn't really exist apart from the founder, that the founder was pretty important. And then I think over the years, um, I've been. I've realised that other investors don't approach it necessarily the same way. And you know, you're one of the people who kind of pointed out to me that um, maybe that's my USP as a as an investor is the fact that like I do spend a lot of time trying to understand the individual. It's still kind of wild to me that that's not the way other people approach it um because you know going back to something we were talking about earlier like what's the difference between public markets and private markets or start, or vc startup angel investing essentially like you're dead right it, it, it's because it's purely really about the individual or the team um that's all you're investing in there's no metrics to look at there's no history there's no financials in most cases so like it is just the person so and the and the business model and and even the business model can change, right? So founders can pivot, you have got the right founder, they can still pivot. So it's obviously all about the individual. And the fact that other investors don't see it that way is kind of crazy, I think.
0: Yeah. And what's the biggest mistake you made in your investments?
1: Wow, well, I mean, I've made lots of mistakes, right? Um, as an investor, you're always going to make mistakes. And I think that, you know, this is by way of excuse for all my my mistakes, right? As, as an angel investor in startup world, like this, there, there aren't great stats around this, right? But in aggregate, you statistically would expect nine out of ten of your investments to fail, right? So you, you kind of have to expect that. Good investors are going to do get a better ratio than that. And What's your ratio? My ratio is about 50 So um, and it's That's not really ju- good. I, it's exceptionally good, yeah. And, and but it's not just about the proportion you get right. It's about how big are the ones that you get right is really important, right? So mistakes. uh, I mean, I've made lots, lots of mistakes. I mean, I think, generally, I have not invested with founders who I don't you know, so I haven't come out of any of my experiences as an investor thinking that founder was a jerk and I got them wrong, actually. I mean, you know, you always learn a lot about founders on the journey and the more challenging the journey is. So the ones that have gone wrong, you kind of learn even more about those people. And some of those lessons are good and some of those lessons are bad or, or the, your estimation of that individual can go up or down depending on that. Not, not depending on success or failure, by the way, depending on how they react to success or failure and how they adapt and how. They they, you know, personally face those challenges. Um, so the mis- I mean the mistakes I've made are one is on a technical level investing in capital intensive businesses. So one of the businesses I invested in was um, an e-bike company, and the first iteration of that company was beautiful bikes, great founders Jack and Nav um, that I really like as individuals, still love as individuals, um, but. And you know, getting e-bikes at the right time in many ways. We, you know, all of it, it was, it, it all looked good and kind of, in some senses, should have worked. But the thing that we got wrong is we were up against challengers who were funded just better than we were. And like, I actually put a consortium of angels together to invest in that business, a business called Analog Motion at the time. We were just, you know, we raised you know, less than a million or something for the first round for that company. It just wasn't enough to compete against other um, businesses that were trying to build big e- 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 e-bike businesses, basically. Um, and, and the other thing that we got wrong was what happened since then is the big fleets, the like rental e-bikes just killed owned e-bikes, basically. So even the big successful brands like Van Muth, w- who built a great brand from nothing, they they went bust recently, right? So it was the wrong model. Um, so what I didn't realize was it was a rental model that was going to win, not an owned model that was going to win there, right? But but you know that that's one lesson. And and I, generally, I never I try never to invest in capital intensive businesses because they just cost too much to build, basically. So that's one big lesson. Another, I think, thing I got wrong was there's been one or two businesses where um, I probably overestimated my ability to impact the outcomes. Um, so one brand, and again, a couple of founders that I really love. So the brand is is Friday on my mind, or Farm uh, is also known, and is fashion business essentially making kind of sustainable, long term pieces, vintage inspired fashion. Um, two mistakes there, I think. First mistake was investing in a business that was very, um, you know, apparel fashion is difficult because you've got to reinvent every season. Essentially, Um, even if you're having kind of longer term wardrobe pieces, you've still got to reinvent that collection uh, at least every year and you've got to get it right again and again and again. And you get inventory that's an issue, which is one reason why I like accessories actually better than pure fashion apparel clothing. Um, so I would never actually invest in a pure clothing only business again, I think, cause it's very, very difficult to keep getting those right. I probably overestimated my ability to impact that business. So, you know, I did a lot in that business. So, you know, I helped the guys open the a store in Soho. I kind of, um, negotiated that. Um, I helped, uh, with Qubits, actually, we built an eye, eyewear line for them that we we manufactured through some suppliers that I knew through Qubits, for example. So I did a lot on an operational level to try and help the guys and help the business. Um, and I think I just overestimated my ability to change the outcomes. Basically. Yeah,
0: I remember you, you getting very hands on with yeah. some of the businesses. Do you enjoy that aspect?
1: Yeah, as an I, investor? I, I,
0: that, that's very unusual, right?
1: Yeah, I think that is a differentiator, actually. So I think that um, and I got this first from Cubits actually, which is, you know, I'm obviously I met Tom right at the start of the Cubits journey. So in the early days there, I would, when we opened like two or three stores, I would be at the weekly store managers meeting every week. And, you know, when Tom was away for a few times, I would chair that meeting, for example. I don't do that. I mean, on the board still at Cubits, but I don't get involved operationally to that, anything like that level now. But in the early days, I was very involved in that. And that was kind of, a, again, a model for me of doing that in other companies. And Um, I only did it where I thought I could help. So like with you, uh, Astrid, for example, I would say like now my operational involvement in Astrid is zero, essentially outside of the board, right? But in, you know, there were a few touch points early on which I thought I could make some difference. So when you were opening, you know, stores early on. I think some of the lessons I'd learned from, you know, store economics and stuff from Qubits were useful for Astrid. So I could kind of bring those learnings across. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we did a brand session early on, I remember. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I try I don't want to interfere in anything where I'm not needed or can't bring anything to. And I think you're at the point now where there's just very little really apart from kind of guidance and understanding where you're at personally that I can bring to you. So I can't, I'm kind of totally hands off. Whereas some of the earlier stage stuff I can still make a real difference to. So, you know, if I can help, I want to help. Right. Because it, it, again, it, it, it raises the chances of having a good investment outcome. So why wouldn't I? And I and I like it, right? I mean, it's fun to be involved in stuff. So, um, but I, you know, you definitely have to tread a line between um, helping and interfering. And yeah. I and, and I think if you talk to the founders I've worked with, I don't think any of them would tell you that I interfere. Uh, and I would hope that most of them would tell you that I've been of some sort of help.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. What advice would you give to someone who's an early stage? Uh, investor or are wanting to start investing?
1: Stick to what you know. So I think a lot of people who dabble in angel investing make the mistake of trying to follow the latest hot trends. So it's like, oh, let's, today it would be like, let's invest in an AI company or, you know, I think it's really important to stick with stuff that you understand, which actually is why kind of, you know, consumer goods, physical stuff can be a really good place for people to make Angel investments because it's products that they understand and the economics are relatively simple. Um, so stick to stuff that you feel that you understand. And you know, maybe you've got a background in finance, uh, maybe you've got a background in wholesale, or you know, wherever you've got some personal professional expertise. Use that expertise because you're going to have a much better sense of whether this is going to be a successful business or not. So that's the first thing. It's not a lottery, right? I think a lot of angel investors kind of treat angel investing like a lottery. So like they 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 buy lots of lottery tickets and it's like, "Oh, I've got an AI business over here, a blockchain business over here and a brand that might be good over there." And like they don't really understand why they own those businesses. And
0: I feel like they're very momentum driven, right? Like going back to like, sticking to your guns, like, I feel like you as an investor, you know what you want, and you have really high self assurance, you don't get swayed by what other people do or like, you know, say, but I think most of the investors I met, they're very momentum driven.
1: Yeah. And and this is one of the things that I learned from my public markets experience, right? Is I I was a, you know, there's, there's a branch of, finance called behavioral finance which basically is fancy bunch of you know academic stuff are basically saying that investors are sheep right um is one of the main lessons from that is um people want to follow other people um we all get sucked into momentum in different forms in all parts of our life right um but investing is a real um crucible of this type of behavior. People want to feel part of the crowd. There's comfort in feeling part of the crowd. So they follow trends. And, you know, in public markets particularly, that's always the worst place to be because it's always the place that's most overvalued and is about to become unfashionable within the next couple of years, right? So, um, and and I have had that discipline kind of deeply ingrained in me through a career as a contrarian investor following the kind of tenets of behavioral finance, right? So, you know, I think I took that into my private investing and in that like I'm, I you know, it's a badge of honor that I, you know, don't really give a shit about what a lot of other people think. It's it's like, you know, break a problem down into some answerable, logical steps uh, to decide whether a business can work or not. And then it's, as a, it's about the individual and the people who are kind of driving it then.
0: It sounds so simple, but it's very unusual. It's a very unusual characteristic and skill set, I find.
1: I think it probably is. I mean, it's difficult to kind of sit here and say, oh, I'm so different from everybody else because, I mean, I think there are plenty of other good investors out there, right? But like, you know, I, I think I've developed my own style through personal experience, what I like, my personality, um, and the way I engage with people, Um I think, you know, if I have to give myself any kind of credit or kudos here, I think like my, I've got good emotional intelligence. Like I think I'm a people person. And I think bringing together the kind of emotional intelligence and people skills. With the kind of technical investment understanding, bringing those two things together is a recipe for success in angel investing. I think,
0: and obviously, like I have a lot of lessons learned by running my business, but it's only one, I guess, one, one business and one learning. Yeah. You have the luxury of seeing multiples of businesses along the way. What are the common thing mistakes that founders make?
1: Carrying on doing something that doesn't work. <laughs> sometimes having a vision and it's great to have a vision and have a set of beliefs core beliefs but sometimes you do have to turn around and when reality kicks you in the face seven times say well well, okay maybe i was wrong being willing to change course when evidence tells you that you're wrong um i think You know, I've seen that in a number of founders just being too stubborn to realize that they were wrong in their vision um, or an element of their vision. Taking on the wrong partners. I mean, this is something, again, we talked about earlier, taking on the wrong investors um, and that coming back to bite them in some form later. Taking on too much money. Sometimes it's less of a problem now because it's harder to raise money now than it was a couple of years ago. But when um, you know, when interest rates were zero and money was more was easier to get for founders, I think there's a temptation to take on um, too much money and dilute yourself. Actually, that that's that's a big one. Actually, is not keeping control of your company. Right when you you know, it's really really important in the early years as a founder to keep control of your company. Um,
0: you know what? That was also very refreshing when you told me to keep control of the company because investors don't really say this.
1: Yeah it's right? because it's control. a conflict
0: of interest in a way. Yeah. Right? I, so I, I don't
1: think, way. I I mean I don't think it is a conflict of interest. Yeah. I mean I think as an investor like one way of looking at this, I said this to people before, is like if you wake up in the morning and you own the company, it's your problem. Um, what you want to do is wake up in the morning and have someone really smart who's got that problem ahead of you. So like when I wake up in the morning, I know it's like your problem every day to solve all the issues that to to me, right? It's not my problem. It's kind of my problem, but it's more your problem and you're going to solve yeah. it. Actually, and this is a mistake that I made maybe once, which is I prioritized taking, you know, where I thought I could help the business a lot, taking a big share in the business to the point where arguably I was too big a shareholder, mm. actually. That's a mistake that founders can make, um, is don't you know make sure you're at least a couple of rounds away from losing control of your company in the early days. Absolutely don't ever go below 50% in your first funding round. That's a massive mistake. Yeah,
0: I think it's such a good point. You've got to motivate yourself. Having yeah, yeah, yeah. When there's you, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of hardships.
1: Yeah, and you've also got to remember that there will be further dilution, right? There'll be further funding rounds, and 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 you also need to have some way to incentivize your own staff going forward. To hire new, you know, when you get into new geographies or new business lines, possibly you may need to bring on really key strategic hires and you may need to use equity to do some of that as well. So there are lots of places, you know, equity is really valuable. I mean, this is the thing that I think, you know, I talked about this when a couple of years ago, we did a session where we were talking to, you know, founders, early stage founders, uh, and I said, um, equity is the most valuable thing that you have, right? If you believe in your vision as a founder, the equity in your business is the single most valuable thing that you can have. And I use some really trite example, like, you know, how much do you spend on coffee every year and how much you spend on alcohol and cigarettes or whatever. But like those numbers are always way bigger than people realize. And so, you know, if you can, I think the way that I phrase it is, like if you can do, drink half the amount of coffee, stick that amount of money into your business rather than taking someone else's money and keep that equity for yourself, you should do that, right? Because if you, and, and if you, believe in your vision and you believe in the value of your vision and you believe that you can succeed like you should value that equity very very highly it should be the most precious thing that you own right so why sell it to a stranger for a pittance and and in the early stages you are going to be selling it for a pittance when further down the line if you're successful that 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 equity can be worth millions right so you know the key key advice for early stage founders actually entrepreneurs is value your equity very very highly and, and you know and another way of looking at that is to say like if you as a founder don't value your equity highly why the hell should anyone else value it right
0: i completely agree and whenever someone asks me what's the one single advice you've received like the best advice i always say this what you told me
1: cool nice yeah, yeah.
0: thank you so much Gary. that was so inspiring <laughs> and so fun
1: i enjoyed it as well it's great Yay. thank you
0: Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow the podcast wherever you're listening or watching. You can follow me at Connie Nam, Astrid at Astrid and, Miu, and Unboxed Instagram page at Unboxed underscore Founder Confidential. See you next week.